Hebrews 2.5, please. And as we go to Hebrews 2.5, let me encourage you in a couple of things, church. Number one, <clears throat> open your Bibles. So I would want to encourage you to bring your Bibles. And if you, if you do not have a Bible, I see a few. There's maybe three on that back table. Feel free to just go grab one right now. And if you don't own one, keep it. Uh, if you just forgot to bring your Bible this morning, kind of get up next to somebody that has a Bible because this is the Word of God. These are, these are God's words. What I'm going to be saying, those, hopefully I'm faithfully going to be preaching, but this is God's Word right here. And there's nothing more important for you to hear in your, in your, in anywhere than this. So not only do you want to hear it, but you want to read it. So let me encourage you, open your Bibles. We... Um, We just want to encourage you to read the word. Okay, so we're going to read that together. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And... Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help me just physically to preach this, Lord. Lord, I I sense even in my own body just a a, a need for help and, and just a weakness, Lord. Lord, I pray that there would be a stillness and a calmness in this auditorium. Lord, that you would engage people's hearts and minds, even their bodies, to listen and to, and to pay attention, as we heard last week, to this great salvation. God, I can't do that, but you certainly can. And I'm asking you to do it. 
And I'm asking you, Father, to give me the words that would be faithful to what you want preached. And I'm thanking you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, I was in Orlando on a retreat, and as is my custom, I got up very early in the morning, and so I looked for a Starbucks that was open very early, and I found one, opened at 5.30 in the morning. Yes, I know, 5.30 in the morning. That's my life as an old man now. I have lunch before 11, you know. But I got up at 5.30, went to the Starbucks, I'm reading, I'm studying, I'm reading Raymond Brown's commentary on Hebrews. And I just read a portion, and and I thought, here's an application. I need to talk about Islam. And I just wrote the word Islam, and immediately I heard Arabic to my left. I lifted up my head. I thought, wow, this might be the Lord. And then I thought, nah, I'm going really behind in my sermon prep. It's Thursday. I I don't have time to talk to these guys. So I put my head back down, and then, you know, you feel the divine finger going like this. And I looked up. What it it resulted was uh, quite a long conversation with three men. They turned out to be Tunisians, uh, Nabril, Lazar, and Adel. Um, We talked about the politics in Tunisia, the revolution in Tunisia that is spreading across North Africa. And then they asked me, so what's the difference between our religions? Yep, this is the Lord. And I said, here's the difference. Here's the difference, guys. The way we treat... The way we treat the very real need to relate to God. What does your religion say about how you relate to God? What does my religion say about how I relate to God? Certainly what we say about God, but how do we relate to God? How are we reconciled with God? I think I I got these words out before I had to go. How is sinful man, how does sinful man relate to holy God? And we, we started talking about it, and then I had to go. Well, that leads me to the driving question of this sermon. And I believe the driving question of this text. And here it is. Is Jesus really necessary in order for me to relate to God? Now, I'm not just talking about intellectually. I know all of us will say, oh, yes, 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 he is. I'm talking about functionally. How do you relate to God? Does Jesus play a role? Or did he just save you at one point and now you relate to God on your own works? It's called self-righteousness and legalism. Does, does Jesus absolutely, is he absolutely necessary for us to be reconciled with God? Perhaps here's the, the key question I want us to, to kind of have hanging over this message this morning. Is Jesus really necessary for salvation? Is Jesus really necessary for salvation? Now, what do you mean by salvation, Al? Well, let's look at the first point of our text. Our text really has two main points from verses 5 to 9 is sort of one main point and from verses 10 to 18 is another main point. So let's look at the first main point of our text, verses 5 to 9. And in that main point, the the, the issue of salvation, this driving question is going to meet us here. And here's the main point of verses 5 to 9. Everything, everything is in subjection to Jesus. Everything is in subjection to Jesus. Well, Al, how does that talk about salvation? Well, let me explain. Let me explain. Let's drop into those verses, shall we? Let's drop into verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. I want you to look at the word subjected. I want you to notice how many times the word subjected or subjection is mentioned in these verses. Number one, here in verse five. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. 
It has been testified somewhere. Now the author of Hebrews is going to quote the Old Testament, Psalm 8. And here it is. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in what? Subjection. Number two, their use of the word subjection or subjected, under his feet. Now I'm putting in everything in, third time now, subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in, fourth time that word's used, subjection to him. But we see him, verse 9 who for for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So what verses five to nine say one thing, everything is in subjection to Jesus. All right, Al, so talk to me about salvation. How does the driving question relate to the main point of verses five to nine? Here is how it relates to it. God's original plan, folks, was for us to have everything in subjection under our feet. What? Getting a little deep here. Yes, I am. But the author of Hebrews got deep before I did. And God got very deep before any of us even were around. You see, Hebrews 2, 7 and 8, quote, 6, 7 and 8, quote, Psalm 8, 4 through 6, exact quote. And Psalm 8, 4 through 6 points to something. What do they point to? They point to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. They point to the main purpose God had for humanity. And that main purpose we're going to see is that man would have everything under his, subjected to his feet. Man would be subjected to God. Hence, God is ruling all under his sub-regent man. Man has everything underneath his feet. Let's look and see if that's what Scripture says. Turn with me to Genesis 1, 26. Genesis 1, 26. We're following the thread. Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, quoting Psalm 8, 4 through 6, pointing back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28. We're talking here about something that's called the creation mandate or the dominion mandate. It's what God originally created us for as men and women. Genesis 1.26, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. Excuse me, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, there's that word, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, created in God's image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. Here it comes. And God said to them, here's the mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There it is. God's plan. I'm going to subject everything under the feet of man. Man's going to be subjected under me. Hence, paradise. But we blew it. We blew it. Instead of wanting to be vice regents, we wanted to be the regent. Instead of wanting to rule under God's authority, we wanted to rule with our own authority. And we rebelled. And we lost paradise. Listen, go back to Hebrews 2. Look at Hebrews 2.6. When it quotes the psalm, it says that God is mindful of us. 
That God cares for us. Look at verse 7. God makes us a little lower than the angels. Look at verse 7. He crowns us with glory and honor, but we lost it, guys, when we sinned. All right, Al, you still haven't talked to me about salvation. Here's salvation. Jesus, catch this, Jesus will now fulfill what God called us to do perfect obedience, and now Jesus will have everything in subjection under his feet as the perfect man, God, man. You got that? So we're talking about salvation because what he wants to do is he wants to restore you to the glory God intended for you if you will submit to Jesus because all things are submitted to him. And that's a little tricky, but man, it's deep and it's good. Isn't it satisfying? It's like a steak. This isn't like superficial, you know, stuff. This is like, I was born for this. Look, I, we, we, were, we were at a place this week where everything was perfect. It was a planned community. It was beautiful. And I just said to somebody, this reflects what God puts in man to want to bring order and subject things to his rule. But what's the problem when man does it apart from God? It becomes tyranny, doesn't it? But when man does it under God, it's beautiful. It's paradise. God, this this is what God built you for. To have a nicely mown lawn and all your bills paid and your house clean. I mean, don't you just feel better when all that's happening? All right, that's something of God in you. Now, some of you become tyrants, and when you don't get it, you yell and scream, and you lose it there. But, But do you get that? That's what's going on here. Jesus has come to restore that to you and to me, if we'll bow our knee to him. Look at verse 8. There's the transition. Now, in putting everything, I'm I'm in the middle of of verse 8. Well, I'll start at the beginning of verse 8. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, the his there is probably man. But watch the transition. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that him there, who is that? Is that Jesus, the son of man, the perfect man? Or is that just mankind? Not quite sure. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. No doubt. But look at this. At the end of 8 and going into 9, we see the transition from mankind in general to Jesus in specific. Look at verse 9. But we see him. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Note the similarity. Note the parallelism in verse 9 with what was said in verse 7. You made him Mankind in general, a little lower than the angels. Now in verse 9, speaking of Jesus, you see Jesus a little lower than the angels. That just speaks to these human. But then, crowned with glory and honor. Do you see that? That's the exact same verbiage that we find back in chapter and verse 7. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now that definitely was talking about mankind. So now what, what we forfeited from our rebellion, Jesus wins with his obedience. Now Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Now Jesus has everything in subjection under his feet. That's why that's the first point of this message. Only Jesus. Angels don't. See, God's plan wasn't to subject everything to angels, but to man. Man blew it. So a second man had to come who fulfilled and succeeded where the first man, Adam, failed. Glorious. Glorious. Do you see him this morning? Do you see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? Do you? Everything's in subjection to his feet. It gets even better, guys. Do you remember Corey's message a couple of weeks ago? 
Do you remember the scriptures that he was trying to share with you? There were a lot of them. He did a great job, but there was a ton. But if you go back to chapter 1 of Hebrews and verse 13, listen to this scripture. Remember, Corey's message was Christ is greater than the angels. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for what? Your feet. Your feet. Your feet. He doesn't say that to angels. He says that to Jesus. Because Jesus is going to fulfill God's original intention that to crown man with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. We didn't. We failed. Jesus succeeded. So verse 9 takes us to this place of how does Jesus, how does Jesus, by the way, uh, Hebrews 1.13 is a quote of Psalm 110. Verse 1, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Why do you think it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Because this is God's purpose. (laughs) And he's saying, here's my purpose. Pay attention. Wake up. Devote yourself. Here's my purpose. Here's why Jesus came. Here it is. Jesus fulfills it in Christ. You will as well. It's great, great biblical theology. Everything is subject to Jesus. Remember that's the first point? Here's the application. If if everything, everything is in subjection to Jesus, here's my question to you. Are you in subjection to Jesus? Before we go any further, into all these wonderful purposes, and some of you are already ruling kingdoms. I can just see it in your eyes, okay? Can I just ask you, are you in subjection to Jesus? It starts with your heart. Yes, he's cosmically over everything. Everything's in subjection to him. Are you? Are you? Are you? See, see, see that's the call on you. That was last week. Pay attention. Devote yourself. Are you? That's God's purpose. There's glory and honor down that pathway. That's your question for application. I love what it says at the end of verse 9. Look at the last line of verse 9. So that by the grace of God, at the end of verse 9, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. See, the key point here is this is all by God's grace. We did not deserve this. We forfeited glory. We forfeited honor. We forfeited everything being subject to us. Now nothing is subject to us. We can't even catch fish. I go out fishing and I catch nothing all the time. The fish just laugh at me as they swim by. I said, this isn't the way it was meant to be. I was supposed to have these over you. (laughs) I mean, dogs don't even obey us anymore. There's this little dog in my neighborhood that I run from because he barks at me when I'm walking. Wait a second. I'm over you, buddy. But in seriousness... Isn't life just one futile attempt to want to bring our environment under some sort of dominion? Well, the reason it is because we do it selfishly. And God's saying, I want to restore you back. So, so, so verse 9 gives us a key. How was Jesus crowned with glory and honor? Through what he suffered and his death. And even further, it was by God's grace that he tasted death for you and me. This leads us now into some application that's even a little bit more maybe cogent, maybe a little bit more to the heart for us. Remember, what was the situation of the original audience? Do you remember? The Hebrews. Why is this sermon, this sermonic letter, why was it written? It was written to Hebrew Christians who wanted to turn back from following God 
because they were suffering so acutely. They were being persecuted. Their homes were being taken. It was hard to be a Christian. The journey was hard, and they're saying, I'd like to quit now, thank you. So God is writing them this sermonic letter saying, don't quit. Do you see that? You see, because the question you can ask is, if everything is in subjection to Jesus, the perfect man, now that he came, he lived the perfect life, he died the death for me, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God, great, I'm on board, then why am I suffering so much, Al? Why does everything seem so out of control? Why do I go to Miami Children's Hospital a week and a half ago with the, with the Georges? that children battling cancer, and and stand at the bedside of little Mackenzie, the seven-year-old girl whose body is bloated beyond recognition with, with deadly cancer. Why is that cancer not in subjection to Jesus? Why is she on the ventilator? And it's so powerful, it's shaking her bed. And her parents are numb. They can't even feel anymore. Why? Well, one of the reasons is he's come and everything is subjected unto his feet. It's been inaugurated at his death, resurrection, and ascension, but it's not been fully consummated. That won't happen until he comes back. When he comes back, and and, and everything is made right, and everything's made due, and we're installed as vice regents under God in the new heavens and the new earth, every tear would be dried, and there'll be no more sin and no more sadness. But today, there still is. But this is what I can tell Mackenzie, and this is what I can tell you. If perhaps you're scratching your head saying, Al, if this is true, why am I suffering? See, on the other, verse 9 tells me, on the other side of Jesus' suffering and death is glory and honor. And Jesus knew that, and he remained faithful. For the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. And I just say to you, friend, for the joy set before you, endure the shame of this fallen world. There's glory and honor on the other side of your suffering and death. That's the truth. If nothing else, friends, we can cry out with the author of Hebrews. I could just see if he's preaching this message. I don't know if he'd be as animated as me. Maybe so. Maybe he's Cuban. I don't know. I doubt it. But he's, you know, Cubans go way back, but maybe not that far back. And maybe he's preaching... And, and, and maybe he's, he's doing like this with his hands because this was a sermon. This wasn't just a, a letter. But when you look at verse, uh, verse 8b, look at verse 8b. I could just hear him preaching this. He's saying, oh, Hebrews, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Do you see him this morning? Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, Jesus in humanity, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering, not in spite of it, but because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, Hebrews, he might taste death for every one of you. And I could just imagine the congregation would be saying, amen. Maybe some are saying, oh my, because the pain is so acute. Christ tasted death for Kenzie, for her parents. That's my hope. That's the only hope I can offer them and myself when the pain of this world just comes crushing in on me. Jesus, everything is subject to Jesus, my friends. Everything is in subjection to Jesus, even your trouble and the evil in your life. Not one molecule is outside of his subjection. Now that begs another question, why does God allow it? I can't answer that in this sermon. But the God who allowed it is the one who endured the greatest suffering on the cross. I can't tell you that. 
Second point, moving now to verses 10 to 18. If the first point is that everything is in subjection to Jesus, second point is Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior. Jesus is uniquely qualified to be our Savior. Let me read for you verse 10. Verses 9 and 10 are connected by this word death. Now you're going to see word, the word death and suffering from 9b all the way down to 18. You're going to see these words death and suffering a lot. I think death is going to be used four times. You can count for yourself. And I think suffering or suffered is going to be used three times. But catch this now, verse 10. For it was fitting, it was right, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, this is speaking of God the Father, and bringing many sons to glory, that's us, should make the founder, the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. What? I mean, the sermon gains traction here. Not only can you look for something beyond glory and suffering, glory and suffering, and that's glory and honor, but even through the suffering, Jesus was made perfect. Now, quickly, what does that mean he was made perfect? Is that speaking in a moral sense? Was Jesus somehow imperfect prior to suffering on this earth as a human being? No. He's never sinned. So the perfect there actually in the Greek can have a couple of meanings, the range of meaning, the different possible words that it can mean. Really, complete is a better translation perhaps. Not that I'm telling the ESV panel how to translate, but complete has a better sense. What are we talking about here? Not a moral perfection, but a vocational perfection. What does that mean? If you think of a vocation, a job, Jesus has a job to perform. His job is to be the savior. How is he qualified as the savior? The way he's going to be qualified as the savior, the way he's going to be positioned vocationally and and to be at the right place and and at the right time to be the savior is to suffer. Do you catch that? Okay, so he's suffering. He's qualified. How did he suffer? Well, there's two ways that Jesus suffered. He suffered in a passive way. He suffered in a passive way. We're talking about verse 10, why it says he was made perfect through suffering. Again, it's a vocational perfection, not a moral perfection. He suffered two ways. Number one, passively. He suffered when he was born as a human. You do understand that when you're God and you have all the privileges of God, to lay aside those privileges, as it says in Philippians 2, without laying aside your divinity, but laying aside all the prerogatives of your divinity, and you're born as a little baby where your diapers have to be changed, you understand that suffering. Do you get that? And do you get that, that since you were God, never restricted, and you were overall, and now you are restricted to living in Nazareth all your life? That's suffering. But, oh, friends, he suffered in another way. He suffered in an active way, and you know that as well as I do. He suffered in writhing, excruciating, physical pain on the cross, but even more so, he suffered by taking the wrath of God that you deserve, that I deserve, on that cross. So that's how he was made vocationally complete and qualified to be our Savior. No angel could do that. No, nobody else, no religious figure, no other religion, no other whatever crazy philosophy you may have or I may have can do that. One did it, Jesus, period. Period. That's what it's saying here. And I love this word. I love this word, founder. Okay, let's talk about that word, founder. The word founder is archegos in the Greek. There is a range of translation of that word. If you have a New American Standard Bible, your Bible will say author of our faith. I'm looking at verse 10, by the way. For it, is, it was fitting that he for whom by whom all things exist and bringing men's, many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect. So the founder, the author. It, the idea is this. 
This person, this archegos, by the way, it's used four times in the, in the New Testament, four times. All four times talking about Jesus. Twice in Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, it's going to say, Jesus, the author or founder of our faith. It's also used in Acts twice of Jesus. But it's the idea of this, one who is first, one who is leading and stays in the lead. The word pioneer can perhaps be used here. Our pioneer, the founder of our faith, the one who leads his people to a new land through the valley of death. Death that resulted in Adam's rebellion. You see, in verse 10, it talks about what's he leading. He's leading a bunch of sons, many sons. By the way, that's generic sons and daughters. Many sons to glory. What's the glory he's leading them to? Remember? Remember Psalm 8? Remember Genesis 1, 26 to 28? Jesus comes, parachutes in. If you, want, if you like military uh, metaphors, which I do, He's the airborne ranger that's parachuting in. He's the Navy SEAL that's parachuting in. He's the pathfinder, whatever tough guy that you can think of that goes through enemy lines and leads civilians who can't help themselves through dangerous territory into the final place where they're going to have rest. That's Jesus. I mean, he hits the ground. Boom. He is large. He is in charge. He's the man. Do you see that? That's what it means. So it's not like founder in the sense of passively. It's like leader, pioneer, author, initiator, instigator. That's our Jesus. That's who he is. And he's leading us back to glory. He's leading us from a place of shame and brokenness to a place of glory. God, God, God says in Psalm 8 that he, he wants us to have glory and honor. He wants to put all things in subjection unto us, but he can't because we're rebellious. He's got to judge us with wrath. We'll get to that in a moment. And we're subject to death because of, of our rebellion. Remember, that was the deal. Adam, you eat that, you're going to die. He did. And who's got the power of death? We're going to see in a moment. It's the devil. So we're bound up. We're lost. We hit, we're shameful. We're naked. Whatever metaphor you want to think. And in comes Jesus. He's the, he's the leader, the pioneer, and he's going to lead us now. Let's go. Follow me. Follow me. This idea of him leading us. Now, before we get into that and his confrontation, I want you to see something. This can be confusing, but I think it's encouraging. Look at verses 11 through 14a. All these verses are saying is that Jesus leads us as one of us. He doesn't just parachute in as an alien. He comes in as a human which is going to be part of his qualification we already talked about as the Savior. But look at 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That doesn't mean we're gods. Eject that thought. It just means we're all human. Okay. Now, he's also God, but he's human. We'll talk about that in another sermon. That is why he is not ashamed to call them. He calls us brothers. And that's, again, generic, brothers and sisters. Saying, and now we're quoting Psalm 22. This is a quote from Psalm 22, I believe, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, now he's quoting Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah 8. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And then the first part of verse 14 gives us why all of this flesh and blood becoming a human is so important for Jesus to be qualified as our Savior. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So our, our kagos, 
Our pioneer becomes one of us, comes into our raid, comes into our rescue, and what does he do? He says, follow me, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to lead you past two things that you cannot lead yourself past. I'm going to take you past something that for you would be deadly. And the first one is death. Uh, I am going to lead you past death. And the second one is God's wrath. They're both bad. Actually, God's wrath is worse. Satan's bad. God is way, way worse. Satan goes away the moment God says, go away. No one does anything to God. So we've got, on our path to get back to glory, we've got death and God's wrath to face. We're in the battlefield. Bullets are flying all over the place. Whatever metaphor you want. If you're a sci-fi guy, big old weird sci-fi things are going to kill you, okay? I'm not a sci-fi guy, so I have no idea what those are. I'm a military guy, okay? Or a football guy. Huge linebacker is just going to kill you right now. You're coming around the end with the ball, okay? All right. Concentrate. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is our archegos. And look what he does in verse 14b. This is why he had to be a human. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The word there, destroy, a better, really better way of understanding that is to render powerless. The Bible says that the final enemy is death. At the end, that's the final enemy. Right now, we still face death. I might even ask, Jesus, if you destroyed, it rendered powerless Satan, then why does he still seem so alive and well? And why is death still a reality? Why, why did three and a half weeks ago I get a call to go to uh, Jackson Memorial Hospital South and spend days with Jeannie and Wally Joyner, and I watched her, her wonderful father, uh, Song Wong, die in that hospital. But why did I stand in that room for an hour and a half with a dead body there as the family's kissing his forehead and weeping? They were also singing praises to God. You know, if, 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 you, if you destroy Satan, who has the power of death, then why did I get a phone call last Tuesday, two weeks ago, from Christy PK? I was, I was 30 minutes away from making a hospital visit for her and her, her mom, who really a few days earlier was just fine, and then just had a series of strokes. And, and on Tuesday at, at 12.45, I get this phone call, and it's Christy sobbing, my mom just died. And I get in the car and drive to Palmetto Hospital, and, and, and again, there, there's Maria Diaz's body. And Christy weeping on my shoulder, and her brother Nelson just in shock. And I'm leaning over this body, kissing her forehead, and praying for them. It doesn't look like he's rendered powerless to me, but he is. Because it says here that through Jesus' death, and when it says through Jesus' death, it encompasses his resurrection, his ascension, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Through that, he renders him powerless, because there is a man who defeated death. And his name is Jesus. And there's a man at the right hand of the throne of God, and his name is Jesus. And that's my hope. That's the hope I have when I look at Christy and say, oh, Christy, there's hope for your mommy. That's the hope that Jeannie and Wally and the whole family sang about it at Song Wong's memorial service. It was glorious, folks. We cry now, but on the other side of our tears, there's glory and honor because Jesus went ahead of us. He went in, he hit the ground, and he killed death. And he defeated Satan. Took him out. Just took him out. That's why he had to come as a man. Angels couldn't do that. 
A man had to do it. Reverse the curse. Adam, you, you rebel against me, you die. Jesus comes, never rebels, then dies and pays my penalty. And I'm walking behind him. And I just went by death. I'm 54, man. I'm thinking about death a lot lately. <laughs> and also because I've been in hospital rooms a lot lately. It still shakes me a little. I don't think I'm afraid of it. But come on, guys. Which one of us doesn't sit down and think, is there something on the other side? Do I just cease to exist? What will God say to me when I stand in front of him? Especially in light of what I just did 10 minutes ago. What? What am I going to say to death? Is Jesus necessary? Death says yes. Look, I'm a, I say yes, believe me or not, but let me tell you something. When death speaks, you should listen because you're all going to answer that call. And death says yes because only Jesus rose from the dead. Your hope in death is Jesus. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't talk your way out of it. You can't manipulate your way out of it. You can't bully it. You can't beat it up. You can't run from it. Jesus is necessary for salvation because death says so. Death says so. I was going to give you an illustration of my funeral. I was going to talk to you about, I'm going to have Corey preach it. Corey, I haven't talked to you about this yet. I was going to talk to you about the fact, I don't have time for this, but I was going to talk to you about the fact that I, if, if my body is in such a shape that it can be an open casket, and I was, I was going to tell you that I'm going to give Corey instructions, like I'm already planning it, that you stand up, Corey, and you ask that question, is Jesus necessary? I pray all my nephews that are unbelievers are there. I pray that many friends are there. I'm going to invite the whole world. I'm going to invite the whole city of Miami, everybody that will come. So don't mess up, okay? It's on you, Corey. <laughs> And, and, I'm, and I was going to tell you this, Corey, I want you to say, is Jesus necessary? It, will all religions get you to heaven or is Jesus necessary? And I want Corey to point to my body and say, that right there, this death answers Jesus is necessary because he's the only one that rose from the dead and he's just going to preach the gospel. He's necessary. He's necessary. Now, if I can just be, I, I do want to give this the proper sobriety. I sensed as I was preparing this message that there are some of you this morning that are scared of death. It's more than just the normal apprehension. We all have that, friends. It's more than just the normal sadness. We all have that. We should have that. It's an enemy. But some of you are horrified of it. I believe before we're done this morning, God wants to minister to you. That as you're walking behind your big bad leader, the pioneer, he's got all the weapons, you can just look to your left and death is dead. He can't, he, can't, he can't touch you if you're a believer in Christ. If you're not, be very, very scared. Be very scared. Okay. No time to go to verse 16. Verse 16 is just another one of those, Jesus is better than the angels, okay? Trust me on that one. We'll preach that next time we preach through Hebrews. Let's go now to verses 17 to 18. We're on this second big point. Jesus is uniquely qualified as our savior. How? As our pioneer, as our founder and author. But number two is our high priest, as our high priest. Let's read it. Verse 17. 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verses 17 and 18 change the metaphor from a founder and a tough guy to a high priest. And this change in metaphor is going to dominate the book of Hebrews. So write down high priest and go start studying it. Because the people that are hearing this sermonic letter, they're well aware of a high priest. They're Jews. They understand high priests. You do not, and neither do I. But from now on in Hebrews, the Christology, which is just a fancy word for the study of Jesus, is going to be dominated by this picture of a high priest. Jesus is my high priest. You got that? Here's what's unique. Look at the first adjective of what kind of high priest Jesus is. Look Look at that again in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, again, an allusion to his humanity, in every respect, so that he might become what? Do you know that nowhere in the Bible is a high priest called merciful? Nowhere. That's just not an adjective ascribed to high priest. What does a high priest do? He represents God to man and man to God. He doesn't have a right to be merciful. If God says, kill them, he kills you. And all you can do is cry out with man, forgive us as you're slaughtering lambs and hoping he doesn't kill everybody starting with you. That's a human high priest. Why can Jesus be merciful? Because he's God. He's God. This is is where I almost wish Jose Prada would be preaching this because this man has a passion that I want to have. Do you remember what it said about Jesus in Hebrews 1? He's the exact imprint of God's nature. What does a high priest do? He represents God to man. Jesus is merciful because God wants you to know God's merciful. That's why if Jesus is going to lead you, he's always going to lead you to the cross. Your God is so merciful that he came to hang in shame on a cross and be broken for you. That's our God. Now, is he also a wrathful God who will judge sin? Yes, he's both, but he's merciful. Do you get that? Jesus is representing God to us here. He's a merciful high priest. Just a couple of scriptures for you to consider in your study. Exodus 34, 6. These are scriptures that talk about God's mercy. Exodus 34, 6 says the following. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then I was reading in my quiet time just the other day in Chronicles. Chronicles is a tough book to read through. But then I found this gem. The whole thing's a gem. It is. But some of it's hard to understand in Chronicles. But listen to this in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9. It says this, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. Kind of what Jose read today in Ezekiel. Why? For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful 
and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Jesus is a faithful high priest, friends, and he calls you to return. This is Hosea's message from last week because he's merciful. He's faithful. Now let's talk about faithful and then we'll be done with the message. We just walk by death. Satan, devil is rendered powerless. We're going to live forever. But guess what we have to walk by now? The wrath of God. Nobody can deal with the wrath of God. No angel, no demon, nobody. Only Jesus. As the merciful high priest. He's merciful, communicating God's mercy toward us, and he's faithful now because we're standing behind him. And if you think you're afraid now, think of your greatest fear, the fear you've had in your life of a horror movie or some sort of danger. It's not comparable to the fear and the horror and the terror that will strike mankind when the full, unvarnished wrath of God is poured out on man. There will be screeching and howling and fear, and kings will run to hide under rocks from the wrath of the Lamb. And you and I are behind him going, oh, Lord. And when we look up, we see a cross where the wrath of God is fully vented, not on me, but on the cross. And as I hide behind the cross, and as I kneel below the cross, and as the blood of Jesus drips on me, then it says, the wrath that was yours is now mine. God looks like a naked Savior hanging on a cross, taking the full wrath of God. And so what does is, what is, what is the author of Hebrews say? Jesus is the only one qualified to do that. It's a dangerous journey. The valley is filled with all kinds of dangers. And Hebrews, I know you're walking through it right now, and I know you've had your property possessed, and I know you've been beaten, and some of you have been killed, but don't stop. Don't stop. There is your founder, your leader, your pioneer. Follow him. Don't go back to Judaism. And to you, don't go back to whatever it is that you're going to go back to. But keep following him. There's the smell of death in the air. Grab onto his garment and just walk behind him. Sometimes with your eyes closed going, I can't take this anymore, Lord. And the Lord says, that's okay. It's okay. Come on. I'm your leader. Follow me. I'll get you out of this. On the other side, there's glory. I'm going to restore you to be a son, a daughter of my glory, and things will be in subjection to you, and you in subjection to Christ, and Christ in subjection to the Father. There's three people that I want to pray for this morning. Ushers, I'm so sorry. I went over in my sermon. We're not going to be able to do communion this morning. So thank you for preparing it, guys. But worship team, could you join me up here right now? There's three groups of people that I want to pray for right now. And if you could just stay with me, guys. Don't start, don't start packing up yet. Just, this, is a, this is a key time. This is a key time. Let's not lose it through a little bit of uh, unattention. Let's, just, let's press in, guys. Got nothing better to do this morning. Got a valley full of death and the wrath of God. And the leader saying, come on with me. And if you don't know him, I pray you'd know him this morning, that he would touch your hard heart and he would break it and his mercy would touch you. Three groups. Number one, those who fear death. I'm not talking about the normal apprehension. I mean, you're horrified. You may have to take drugs, some sort of drug to calm you at night. It, it terrifies you. 
If you're a Christian, that ought not to be. And God wants to set you free. In this scripture we read, didn't have a chance to go through it, but he says, I'll set you free from the slavery of the fear of death. It's a slavery. Second group, perhaps the larger group. Those who want to pull back from God. You don't want to walk through the valley anymore. It's too hard. It could be, you could be expressing it through sarcasm. Through just kind of, just not even caring. Distance from God, distance from other believers, distance even maybe from your spouse. Maybe some of you want to quit the faith. You say, you know what, Al? This valley is filled maybe not so much with death, but my own sin, and I'm tired of being a hypocrite and falling. If everything is subject to to Christ, why is this sin still ruling my life? And I hate it. And you've become maybe, I don't know if I mentioned this, a little sarcastic. Oh, yeah, right, whatever. Just whatever. Yeah, sure, Al. Eh, Another sermon. Now, look, there's Al. He's screaming again. But just sarcasm. Just, this is, this is, it's a joke. Why go to home group? I know what they're going to say. Oh, friend, God wants to deliver you. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless you. So, please hear that. And then the third group. Oh, unbeliever, you who don't see your need for a Savior, you who think you can get through this valley, no problem. You don't see death and you don't see God's wrath, or if you see Him, you ignore them. You know, no one likes to talk about death. Because death doesn't discriminate. And it makes you have to think about eternity and God. So most people, I don't want to to think about it. Can I invite you to think about it? can invite you to to bow your knee to a God who's merciful. So those are the three groups. And what I'd like to do, guys, is uh, in a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to kind of turn the lights down a little bit. and We're going to worship. I'd like to invite, again, the pastors to come up and home group leaders. Now, why do we do this? If you're new to our church, we're not doing this to force you to come up. But this is our thinking. It's Sunday morning. You've just listened to a message. The Spirit of God... Bible tells us there's the presence of God is always with us, but there's something special about God's people getting together. So all we're providing is a place for you to, to just touch base with someone to pray. It's called ministry. So you don't have to come up, but we're here if you want to. So after I pray, we're going to all stand. The leaders, would you come forward? And while we're singing, if you want ministry, just come on up. We'll pray with you. And then when that's done, I'll dismiss us. But let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to these three groups like only you can. Lord, I pray that those that are fearful of death right now, good people, godly people, but when they think of death, there's just a disconnect, there's fear, all kinds of things. Lord, would you set them free right now? For you have rendered powerless the one who had the power over death, the devil, and you have set free those who were in slavery to the, the thought of death. Lord, for those who've become, well, they just want to quit. They want to pull back. You know what? Maybe some of them, they don't don't want to go back, but they just sat down. They said, I'm not following you anymore, Jesus. I'm tired. Lord, would you gently pick them up and give them a, a, a desire to seek you and to know you as a merciful and faithful high priest. You were tempted by what you suffered, Lord, so you know what it's like for us. And you'll help us. That's what verse 18 says. You'll help us. You won't hurt us. You won't condemn us. You'll help us. So give them that vision. And Lord, for the unbeliever in this room, 
oh God, with all my heart, would this be the day that you would open their hearts and soften them and give them faith. And I pray that in Jesus' name.